Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Pastor Nick Cady, and every week we try to bring you a discussion about a theological topic that is relevant to your life, and we try and help you understand how theology is not an abstract concept, something that's hard to grasp, but something that's really relevant and, and important for our lives. So today my guest is Pastor David Guzik. Hey, David, welcome to the program. Thanks, Nick. Pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, so David, um, I know a lot about you, but I'm not sure that all my listeners do. So would you please maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe what you've been doing in the past and present? Nick, I'd be shocked if all or even many of your listeners know anything about me. But uh, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for many years. I actually got a very young start in ministry, started teaching Bible studies when I was just 16 years old, hmm. and was on to pastoring uh, my first church in, well, really, we just started shortly before my 20th birthday, so I could say it was 19, but basically in my 20s, I started pastoring. Uh, but maybe the most uh, kind of unique way that I think God has used me is I do have a written commentary through the entire Bible that some people find helpful. And so, it's available completely free out on the internet, on my own website, which is called EnduringWord.com. A lot of people also use it on an excellent Bible website called the Blue Letter Bible, that's blb.org. And so, I'm just grateful that over the years, I've been able to reach some people uh, with that free Bible resource. Awesome. Yeah. And um, let's see, you live in Santa Barbara, California, beautiful place. That's correct. Uh, my wife, Ingalil, and I, and uh, we're coming up on 39 years of marriage. It'll be 39 years this coming January. Yeah, we've lived here in Santa Barbara now for 11 years plus. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, we're very grateful. Yeah, prior to that, so I, some of my listeners probably know that I used to live in Europe. I lived in Hungary, but at about the same time that I was in Hungary, you were also in Germany. That is correct. Uh, I went over to Germany to establish a small international Bible college, which, is, which was associated with the Calvary Chapel family of churches. So, it was called Calvary Chapel Bible College Germany. It was there with a wonderful congregation in a smaller city in Germany called Siegen, Germany. And we lived there for seven years, and my wife and I, we often think that that was the uh, most wonderful thing that we ever did in ministry together. Those were great years for us. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I know that you you know, you know, left a thriving church, went and uh, went on this journey, planted, a, started a new Bible college, and then went to Santa Barbara. What a, what a cool journey. And I have friends who attended the Bible college there when you were the director, and they all talk about their good experiences. So, I had the chance to visit once for, a, for a, like a week-long pastor's conference. It was a good time. Great. Well, and, and David, we also work on a project together, don't we? We work on a, a group that I've mentioned a lot on this show, which is the Expositors Collective. So, we're both on the steering committee and um, I think now, since this last event we did, I now hold the record as being the one who has attended all of them. I think you have attended all of them but one. That's true. I've attended all the domestic uh, expressions of Expositors Collective. I wasn't able to go on the European trip that you did, which sounded wonderful. I wish I could have made it for that. It was a good time, so more to come. But uh, David, what we're here to talk about today is the topic of Christian liberty, and so, maybe I'll just uh, set you up to say, you know, maybe lay a foundation for us. What is Christian liberty and what is it not? And then we'll, we'll delve into some more questions. The understanding of Christian liberty is based on the fundamental truth that not each and every issue that a modern-day disciple of Jesus Christ might deal with 
is directly dealt with in Scripture or, you know, by great correlation, by, by principle in Scripture. And therefore, there are certain matters that are really up to the individual Christian's conscience before the Holy Spirit. And the Christian has the liberty, uh, as a believer, as part of the priesthood of all believers, to seek the Lord for themselves and come to their own conclusions and to stand firm in those convictions, all the while respecting their brother or sister who may come to a different conclusion. And just understanding that these are things that uh, the Holy Spirit has the liberty to speak differently to each individual believer about. In the New Testament, it's mainly dealt with in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in Romans chapter 15 over the issue that was very prevalent in the early church, uh, over this issue of whether or not a Christian was permitted to eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And as Paul works through those issues, both in 1 Corinthians 10 and more pointedly in Romans chapter 15, the conclusion really is, is that uh, that's a matter left up to the individuals dealing with the Holy Spirit, and Christians must not despise believers who come to different conclusions. Great. Yeah. And, you know, I had um, asked you, so we, we saw each other in Colorado Springs, and I had asked you, hey, is there a topic that you like, you're really kind of passionate about, into, and interested in that you'd like to talk about? And you said that this was the topic. So, I'm curious to know a little bit about why this topic is so meaningful to you. Well, in the last couple of years, we've seen uh, such a dramatic variety of responses, both on the part of churches and individuals, uh, to the... Uh, pandemic that we call the COVID-19 or however you want to term it, pandemic. But to me, that that's just a modern expression of it. These things have been around on issues for a long time. Uh, whether or not it's okay for a church a Christian to smoke cigarettes, whether or not it's okay for a Christian to get a tattoo, whether or not it's okay for a Christian to uh, moderately drink alcohol. You know, th these kind of things are areas that I think very much correspond to this matter of a, of a Christian conscience, and the individual Christian has the liberty to, before the Lord, seek God about it, what God's will would be for their life, and to respect how God may deal differently with another believer in regard to it. It just seems that these issues are very much at the forefront today. Hmm. So, you mentioned that uh, these are issues that are not this, – this idea of Christian liberty – it's something that has played out in different ways throughout church history. I want to ask you about that in just a moment, but anecdotally, just mentioning that I had some friends who attended the Bible college that you were the director of, and they said to me that in the network of Bible colleges that they were a part of, none of the other schools allowed them to get tattoos. Uh, I'm like the only person I know in my age group who doesn't have any tattoos, which I feel like is actually maybe more punk rock than they are. But that's, I kind of keep yeah, that. Yeah, you're, you're, you're truly the countercultural one here. Isn't that true? I mean, just empirically, that that's the case. That's what I try to tell them, but they, they don't really believe it. But wow. uh, uh, they mentioned to me that at the Bible college that you led, it was one of the one of the only ones, if not the only one, that allowed tattoos and piercings. And um, one of my friends told me that you actually dropped him off at the tattoo parlor on one occasion. You know, I felt that if the Bible doesn't prohibit it, and look, I understand that this is somewhat, there are some people who believe that the Bible do, does prohibit 
tattoos based on the Leviticus passage. I, I don't take it that way, but that's, a, that's an issue of biblical interpretation. But because I believe that the Bible does not prohibit the modern practice of people getting tattoos, I didn't feel that I could prohibit it uh, in that particular situation. But I did feel that it was wise to, to just kind of advise people and to give them some guidance and then let them make up their own mind before the Holy Spirit. Mm. Well, okay, so let's talk about this question about issues of Christian liberty that have been divisive throughout history. Do you, can you think of any um, going back in maybe more modern times or really ancient times? Well, I mean, if you want to go back to the, you know, I, I, I really like talking about the one that Paul spoke about there in Romans and 1 Corinthians is at a meeting, eating meat sacrificed to idols, because in some ways you would think that this was a uh, completely clear issue. You could marshal biblical evidence for either side of the equation. You know, on the side of not eating meat sacrificed to idols, there's, you know, this great tradition all the way from the Old Testament, all these commands to not participate with the unfruitful works of darkness, to have nothing to do with idolatry, and on and on. Yet, in Paul's mind, that didn't settle the issue. Uh, but then you could also argue it from the other side. When the Lord spoke to Peter and said, arise, kill, and eat, of course, the, the real issue there was the issue of whether or not people were unclean before God, but it was still definitely connected with the foods they ate because uh, in the um, ancient Jewish world, uh, a lot of your connections with other people centered around foods and such. Anyway, you, you could say that God opened up the doors and gave liberty on the basis of that. So, in both of those situations, Paul didn't appeal to either one of those things that you might think he would appeal to. He recognized that this was an area that people could differ in. And so, you, you have through the ages uh, just different things that, that pe- again, we need to stress, um, these aren't areas where the Bible clearly does tell us. For example, we don't leave it up to the individual conscience to say whether or not adultery or fornication is wrong. The scriptures speak clearly there. There's no really debate about it. Um, but again, Things such as the moderate use of alcohol, uh, things such as smoking tobacco, uh, uh, other things that could be at play in the culture. Uh, dancing is a good, whether or not it, it's it's permitted or the, in, in whatever context for a Christian to dance. Um, it goes back in earlier, whether or not a Christian could go to a movie theater, whether or not a Christian could play cards, playing cards. All these kind of things are, are matters, I think, that ultimately go back to this issue of Christian conscience. Yeah, I remember living in Hungary and running into some of those where um, we had a church like fellowship night at our church in Hungary, and uh, some Christians wanted to dance, and other Christians were other people who came to our church were totally scandalized by it. And then we had other people who wanted to play cards, but I mean, not gambling, just playing cards, and it was completely off limits. Yes, I like to say, you know, can Christians dance? Well, I like to think, you know, some can and some can't. Yeah, I'm absolutely among the Christians who can't dance, and so I would be very uh, happy to prohibit it for the entire body of Christ, but I'll just keep it to myself on that one. All right. Yeah, I actually know I, I know a few jokes about uh, about this matter. Like, for example, there's this, there's this one that says, um, Jews don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, um, and Protestants don't recognize the Pope as the head of the church, 
and some Christians don't recognize each other at a liquor store. Ah, so, yeah. that's kind of humorous. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Somewhat humorous. All right. I'll yeah. try. I'll try harder. Um, there's other ones that say, um, why is it that some Christians don't have sex? And the reason is because it might lead to dancing. Right. I don't right. want to call yeah. out yeah. any denominational groups, but anyway, so I'll just keep it at that. So, um, yeah, so that, that is interesting. Um, how about this question for you? Uh, what do you think are some common misunderstandings regarding Christian liberty? Well, I think some misunderstandings that people have regarding Christian liberty is that they apply the principle too broadly, just as I've said before. Um, look, th- there are Christians who will look you square in the eye and tell you, God is okay with my adultery. He gave me a pass on this one. I talked to him about it. We're good. Hmm. And we would just recognize, no, you know, dear brother, dear sister, whatever you're thinking, you're, you're deceived at this point. So, some people want to um, uh, dr- draw those lines far too broadly. And there's other Christians who will agree to the idea of Christian liberty, but uh, only in a theoretical sense. When you get down to any particular issue, they act as if the testimony of the scriptures is so clear on this particular issue that it's just beyond debate. And, uh, you know, you, you, you get that with a lot of different issues that come up. I mean, any of the previous ones we've mentioned, uh, you, you could imagine somebody making a case and they say, well, sure, I'll agree with that principle, but clearly it doesn't apply here because it is analogous to somebody trying to excuse their adultery by saying it's a matter of Christian liberty. So, I think we can err on either side of this issue. Mm. You know, somebody I was talking to was mentioning to me um, from Romania, they had uh, been uh, privy to a revival that took place in the early 20th century um, amongst certain Christians in Romania. And they were saying that what happened during that time is that there, as people were coming to the Lord and there was this revival taking place, and a lot of Christians maybe who had been nominal were, were coming alive in their faith, giving their lives completely over to the Lord, that one of the ways that they responded was, you know, they, they stopped drinking or they, they stopped wearing, adorning themselves, you know, uh, the women with jewelry and things like that. And when they started doing these things, it was, it was as unto the Lord, if you will, like to, to use how Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 14, where he says, you know, let each person be convinced and do it unto the Lord as your conscience says. And, um, but then what happened is that in subsequent generations, as time went on, those things which had been maybe natural responses to saying, hey, I'm going to give my life wholly over to the Lord, and therefore I don't want to do these things, which maybe I don't consider helpful, um, those things became new rules and maybe a kind of form of legalism. Another, another example would be a revival that took place in Wales, where famously, you know, bars were shutting down and going out of business. And then that turns into, in the next generation, a complete prohibition against drinking alcohol. What are, what are your thoughts on those? Well, I, I think that that is a, is a very accurate understanding of how Christian history has often gone. Because what we're talking about are two people adopting the same action, at least uh, from the outside, the observable action. For example, if we want to take the um, abstention from any kind of alcohol, that's the outward action. Well, it's possible for one Christian to do that as a 
total Holy Spirit response. They're being faithful to God. The Spirit has stirred their heart and said, this isn't for you. And so they're, they're just genuinely responding to the Holy Spirit. And it's possible for another Christian to do the exact same outward action and it really be a matter of law, of slavery to the traditions of man, maybe even a uh, self-righteousness. So, uh, yes, it, the, the answer to these things isn't found in the outward action. It really is in the heart behind it. And this, the phenomenon you've mentioned, Nick, about God moving among believers in a time of revival or renewal or awakening, whatever you want to call it. And then that over, um, sometimes over decades, sometimes it takes a generation or two, it hardening into some kind of harmful legalism. This is a common, it, matter of fact, you might even say it's an expected phenomenon. It just It's such a clear historical pattern that this is how often things work. You know, another thing that I've often run into, and I feel like I, I bump into it a lot um, here in the U.S., maybe more than I did in Europe, is that, um, you know, on the one hand, right, legalism is this idea that you have to do certain things in order to score points with God. But the opposite of legalism, kind of the other ditch on the on the opposite side of the road, um, is something called antinomianism, which believes that any form of law is, you know, bad. And it views the Old Testament law in a very negative way, right? We've been set free from the law, and therefore we shouldn't have anything to do with it, right? Um, and yet, the difficulty with that can sometimes be the fact that, like, the longest chapter in the Bible extols the greatness of the law. And it says things like, Lord, I love your law. And I think that that's really hard for some people to understand if they've come at this from an antinomian perspective that says laws are always bad. And, you know, whereas uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 is essentially saying just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it, I, I would also sometimes tell people that, okay, but there are other things where just because you don't have to do it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. So, for example, oh, maybe maybe you could give some examples. Well, no, I'm not here to. I'm just here to really give affirmation to to your observation there. I I think that Christians so often error by equating obedience with legalism. Hmm. You know, either for myself or for me to preach obedience to God is not to preach legalism. It's what the significance of my obedience is, what what the effect of my obedience. That is really what goes over into a, a legalistic mindset. And so, we, we shouldn't be hesitant at all. The, the, the real problem here is not the preaching of obedience or the desire for obedience. It's basically taking the traditions of man and making them the law of God. So, I, I can say, we'll just take dancing for an example. Look, I, I don't believe that the Bible forbids dancing. So, for me to forbid it is to take a tradition of man and to equate it as a law of God. Or for me to uh, forbid it claiming the Bible as my authority, either implicitly or explicitly, um, that is really, I think, getting into uh, into that dangerous legalistic territory. But Nick, you are exactly right. And and there is this antinomium, this against the law a tendency within believers as well. 
that really wants to act as if obedience equals legalism. It's not true at all. Mm. Yeah, and I and I see it with people who will be like, um, even with church attendance, I I find it sometimes funny that I'll I'll meet people from our church and I'll say, oh hey, I haven't seen you in a while, and they'll be like, oh yeah, everything's fine, but I try not to go to church every week because I don't want to be legalistic about it. I'm like, oh, I'm not sure that that's how that works, right? <laughs> or like I've had people say, well, I don't tithe because I don't want to be legalistic, right? So. I, the Bible says I don't have to, therefore, uh, they equate that with that you shouldn't. And I, I just don't think the two are the same thing. Well, and again, the legalism would be that they could be legalistic in their non-observance. If they think that their non-observance makes them righteous before God, then they are legalistic in their non-observance as well. So, yeah, it's, it's really a, a crazy phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Okay, so um, uh, on this topic, so um, how's how's here's the next question that I think comes up a lot with what Paul says, um, you know, in Rome, especially in First Corinthians eight, nine, and ten. I just have that on my heart right now because I've been currently teaching through that. Uh, I taught eight and nine the past two weeks, and I'm teaching number ten, First uh, Corinthians ten, this coming Sunday. And it seems that what Paul says in First Corinthians ten is something that I run into a lot. Um, he seems to be addressing the fact that the the Corinthians were were kind of saying. Hey, Paul, where's the line? Because we want to know exactly where the line is so that we can go right up to it and maybe tiptoe on it, but not cross it. And, and so I sometimes, well, I host a radio show every week and, you know, it's a call-in show and it's unscripted. So I get a lot of calls and I get calls from people who've been Christians there for, you know, their whole adult life. I get other calls from people who, um, are just, they hear the radio show. Maybe they're not a Christian at all. And I get a lot of calls about things like, hey, is it a sin to do this? Or is it a sin to do that? Um, things like, you know, particularly with drugs and um, living with somebody you're not married to. These are like the ones that people ask about a lot. And I'll often tell them, I think you're approaching this the complete wrong way. Because it seems that what Paul's saying there in 1 Corinthians 10 is, do all things to the glory of God, which means that the question I ask is not, where's the line so I can ride as close as I can to the line, but rather ask a whole different question altogether. What can most glorify God? What's most helpful in my calling as a Christian and my calling to be an ambassador of Christ? Um, I think that changes the conversation completely. What do you think? Absolutely. If I could share an anecdote, um, I, it, there was a man who was sort of legendary in the earlier history of the Calvary Chapel movement. This man who was an assistant pastor to Pastor Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, his name was Romain, Ellie Romain. Everybody just called him by his last name, Romain. And I heard somebody relate a story about how one time they went to Romain and said, Romain, um, I'm smoking. Uh, you know, obviously cigarettes, he's talking about smoking cigarettes. I feel like, um, I don't know, maybe I should stop. I don't know. Should I? Shouldn't I? And, and Romaine told him something like this. He said, listen, you, you just go right on smoking. No problem. No problem at all. He said, just every time you put a cigarette in your mouth, say, praise the Lord for this cigarette. <laughs> and, and, and that's all he told him. Well, the, the guy quit smoking pretty soon because he just found it incongruous for him to say that. Now, look, I, I understand that that principle could be abused, but in general, I think that's a very valid principle. 
if you have a habit or something in your life that you can't legitimately incorporate into a life that's glorifying God and praising him constantly, the way that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, doing all things for the glory of God, then it, it is valid to question it. And again, that's not questioning under legalism. It's questioned really under relationship and the desire to live for God's glory. I, I think the real test on this is for us to be generous in heart towards believers who perhaps have not come to our same convictions on a particular issue, uh, trusting that um, if God wants them to deal with that particular thing, God will speak to them about it in the appropriate time. Now, m maybe it'll take a suggestion or a hint from somebody else. Uh, maybe the Holy Spirit would use that. But it, in large part, it's going to be the Holy Spirit that tells them instead of a, a, a preacher railing upon them about it. Mm. All right, one, one last question on this topic, and that's this, that in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, and it would seem in, in Romans 14, Paul is saying to them, hey, look, I will do anything to not put a hindrance or a stumbling block in front of my brother. If, if, if eating meat caused my brother to stumble, then I'll never eat meat again. Now, the pushback to that is that some people say, well, you know, the result, if you actually live like that, you will be held hostage because everybody's going to be bothered by something, right? You're going to have the, the non-dancing people scandalized by the fact that you're dancing. The people who don't listen to uh, anything but worship music are going to be scandalized that you listen to something other than worship music. The people who, um, you know, are scandalized by the fact that you... Um, said it's not 100% wrong to smoke cigarettes in every case, right? Or, or something like that, right? So, you know, how do you avoid just being held hostage by other people's whims in this whole discussion? I think it's done actually fairly easily. Now, it's easy to understand the concept. It's difficult to apply. But you just make a distinction between offending someone as an enticement for them to... Uh, do the same behavior, which would be sin or lead to sin for them, and simply scandalizing a legalistic believer. I, I think you see this really pretty clearly in the life and ministry of Paul. The people who were Christians from a Jewish background, I'm sure they were offended at eating at the same table with Gentiles. But Paul did not accommodate those scruples because those scruples were not based on the thing, oh, it will lead me into sin. Those scruples were based actually on a very legalistic kind of attitude. Paul did not hesitate, and may we say neither did Jesus before him, did not hesitate to offend, so to speak, the legalistic scruples of others. Jesus did all the time with Sabbath observance. He didn't care about offending their human rituals when it came to the Sabbath, but Jesus observed the law of God. So, the I'm offended card really doesn't get you very far because that's not the kind of stumbling Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about, the New Testament talks about the kind of stumbling that would be an enticement for me to follow you into the same behavior, and that behavior would be a sin for me because of how the Holy Spirit has spoken to my conscience. Mm. Now, that is something that needs great sensitivity to. For example, with the subject of the moderate consumption of alcohol. Okay, that needs to be very seriously considered. 
because there is at least the potential there for enticing a believer who God has spoken to, and because of the habits of their life, they should not touch alcohol. So, that needs to be kept in mind in the entire uh, formulation of it, but not just to accommodate somebody else's legalism. Okay. So, yeah. So, you wouldn't, uh, if you had somebody uh, who was struggling with alcoholism, you wouldn't, uh, you know, just like drink with them or in their presence because that would just be insensitive to what they're going through, maybe maybe stumbling them to go back into it. Um, but on the other hand, if somebody were to say to you, hey, David, uh, I think you should wear suits because I grew up in a church where the pastor wore suits and I don't like it that you don't wear a suit. It's stumbling me. You would say, well, welcome to you know being stumbled because I'm not going to wear a suit. Sure. Or, or to give the theoretical example, uh, you know, somebody's a Christian is drinking moderately, you know, appropriately. So we're not talking about any sense of the sin of drunkenness here. And another believer comes up to him and says, well, I think you should stop. I'm offended. It would be valid for that person to say, well, it, is this an offense to you because you think no Christian should do this? Or is this an offense to you because, you know, you you are persuaded you shouldn't drink and I'm sort of enticing you? And if that person, well, I wouldn't dream of drinking. That's, and we'll, say, well, then forget it. This is no temptation to you. This is just offending your own legalistic standard. So I, mm. I, I think that's the distinction there. Mm. You know, what, how does this uh, relate to what Jude says in the, in the book of Jude? He says that some people use grace as a license to sin. Some people might hear this discussion and say, oh, this is just David and Nick talking about why it's okay to do whatever they want. It's true. It happens. I, I mean, Paul anticipated this. The, the teaching of Paul when it came to grace, and I'm not trying to say, you know, it's just Paul. We're talking about the Holy Spirit's inspired message to us through the New Testament. It was radical enough that there were some people who thought that's what he was teaching. Let us mm. sin that grace may abound. And we know that's not what Paul taught. We know that that's a, a twisted understanding and application of what Paul actually taught. But the way a lot of people teach today and in the history of the church— they wouldn't come within a um, hundred miles of that idea uh, because they, they don't have that same recognition that there are some things that are between the individual believer and their God. Now, on the one hand, that gives liberty. But Nick, let's be serious about this. It also gives great responsibility hmm. because it is between that believer and God their conduct in this matter. And not everybody who claims liberty of conscience to do such a thing is actually being truthful with that claim. But really, that's something that God has to deal with unless the Holy Spirit would make it exceedingly evident to others. All right. Well, hey, in the last few minutes of this episode, I just want to ask you a couple rapid-fire questions. Was that all right? Absolutely. Okay, here's, here's my first one. What's the best book you've read in the last year, and, and how are you currently growing? I am reading, for a class I'm taking, a book on, this is going to sound very unspiritual, um, on church uh, management and administration. And I got to say, it's been a great book. Uh, it's something about things that I don't often think about. Uh, it's been something that's been very edifying for me. And look, I, I spend a lot of time in the Bible and in Bible commentaries, uh, which I find tremendously helpful and inspiring. 
sometimes it's good for me and helpful for me to read things that are eminently practical. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's a book I can point to. Cool. What are you most excited for as far as the church, meaning, you know, the idea of the, the worldwide church? What, do, what are you hopeful for in regard to the church right now? Well, I would say two things. First of all, if you're talking about the global church, look, Christianity is thriving around the globe. Uh, we get a little discouraged looking at the Western world. Uh, the United States, and in some ways, uh, North America, if you want to include parts of Western Europe into that, you can. But we get discouraged looking at that from time to time. But globally, Christianity is healthy. Nick, you and I both know that if, you know, for some purely hypothetical reason, Christianity were to perish in North America and the uh, English-speaking world tomorrow— it would still be thriving around the globe. Yeah. So that excites me. The other thing that excites me, if I could say, it's the darkness and the perplexity of our present moment in uh, the United States and in much of the English-speaking world. Uh, we don't like it. It makes us feel disoriented and uncomfortable. But these are the type of seasons where God really moves. Uh, because his people turn to him in desperation, and God graciously answers. So, um, I'm, I try not to be overly pessimistic, even though there's certain things in the world today that would seem to merit that. This is, uh, it, it, we could be on the threshold of real harvest time for the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. I like to, I like to see it that way too. You know, I think that God has called us as a church for times like this. I think these are the times when we really shine and uh, I, I'm frankly excited about it. I think there's a lot of doom and gloom out there, but I think that as the people of God, one thing I, I like to say to our church is uh, the posture of the people of God is not on our heels, but on our toes. We lean into times like this uh, to shine the light of God's uh, truth and grace and glory. So, David, thank you wow, so much. Wow, that's great. For... I like that. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Uh, hey, David, thank you so much for being on the show. And maybe tell our listeners one more time where they can connect with you and your materials. Oh, if people are interested in the Bible resources we have, uh, again, our website is EnduringWord.com. If people just wanted to search for my name on Google, they'd find it pretty easily as well. We also have a pretty good reach on our YouTube channel, so they could just search for either my name or Enduring Word on YouTube, and there's a ton of Bible resources available there as well. Yeah, and you do a Q&A on, on occasion on YouTube, right? I do. I try to do it every Thursday afternoon at 12 noon Pacific time. I do a live Q&A where we respond to questions that come in on the live chat. That's awesome. So if anybody out there has any questions, things they've been wondering about, um, you can reach out to David and just uh, chat with him on Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific. David, thanks for being with us. And thank you all for listening to Theology for the People. We'd love it if you'd give us a rating and review over on the Apple or iTunes podcast uh, app or website. Uh, written review helps boost us in the algorithm. Make sure to check out the written blog of this site over at nickkady.org, N-I-C-K, cady.org. It's called Theology for the People as well. God bless you. We'll be with you next time.